Welcome to Monster Porn, Weird Fiction and Horror Podcast. The podcast that knows vampires are some sexy mother suckers. Screw being a Chad with the girls. Be a Vlad. Bleh. Today on Monster Porn, a vampire special with The House on Sumner by Brett Norwood and a short, Eateth of My Flesh by Matt Cummins. Good day, monster baiters. Halloween season is nearly here. We know this because the leaves will start changing soon. And Starbucks has probably started selling pumpkin spice lattes the second they open September 1st. So, to get you stoked for Halloween, we present to you a vampire double feature. Get pumped. Get pumped for some sucking. Did we mention this podcast is called Monster Porn? But we're not actually porn, despite Matt's erection. As I I always say, Monster Porn Podcast is not actually intended to be used as porn. But if it happens to get you off, you're welcome. But if what really gets you off is handcrafted horror fiction and weird tales, you've come to the right place. If vampires make your twilight parts sparkle, you are indeed in the right place. And if you can't suck on vampires enough, be sure to go back and check out episode MP27, Narancia, a Slavic vampire myth, after the show. Also, keep an eye out for an original Dracula-related short story by yours truly that I contributed to October Pod's upcoming Halloween special. He has some great writers and artists contributing. Be sure to check it out on YouTube. Do we have any new reviews, Matt? We have been getting some awesome reviews. Uh, dollar sign Daddy Gang Dollar Sign says, <laughs> Tentacles, mm, yes! Five stars. <laughs> Thanks for that. We also have an Apple Podcast review from user... Uh, this is awkward. Death to Puggles. Hey! Fuck you, buddy! Death to Puggles says, I love the original creative weird stories these guys produce. I've just started listening to the catalog, and I'm all in. Thanks a ton, Death to Puggles. Glad you could join us, and hey, if we don't creep you out too much, we hope you stick around. If you all want to support Monster Porn, the best way to do so is by leaving a review. You can also tell your friends, but that means you have to admit to listening to us. Also, we have the Monster Porn store with t-shirts, phone cases, stickers, and a mug at monsterpornpodcast.com slash store. That's right. We appreciate your support. You are all our favorite monster baiters in the whole world. All right. Enjoy the show. I can't believe I'm going to another Brett barbecue. Thankfully, I bought all of the food so that I could make sure nothing strange happens. It's a holiday. Wait, Labor Day is a holiday, right? Well, maybe even Brett can have a holiday from the creepy. Ah! Welcome, Matt. Thank you for the pig parts. I put them on the smoker at 2 a.m. The ribs have been pulled and are resting. The sausage just went on, and the brisket will be ready shortly. I did make a side of baked beans and coleslaw. Do you like slaw, Matt? Never mind that. Brett, what happened to you? How do you mean, Matt? 
Uh, you're fat? I'm sensitive about my body right now, Matt. The butt doctor said I'd experience strong emotions. Butt doctor? From what? From gaining a belly in two weeks? Brett, what does that say? My new apron? Here, you can read it now. Cook's been kissed. Bun in the oven. Mm-hmm. Give me your hand, Matt. Nope. Uh-uh. No. No, there's no way I'm touching that, Brett. What in the hell is wrong with you? It's just the motherly glow you're sensing, Matt. I'm in the aural stage of my 13th trimester. My proc doc says that I'm dilated several centimeters, and I'll be due any time now. Ah, the brisket's ready. I'm going to carve up the meat. Would you set out the condiments? Well, someone should have worn a condiment. Brittle, burnt umber leaves skittered across the sidewalk as Cordelia stepped out of her husband Drew's Toyota Tacoma and raised her sunglasses up onto her sienna hair. The house wouldn't sell come December, January, February, but it might yet in October. She pulled the orange Home Depot bucket full of scrubbers and bottles and nitrile gloves out of the Tacoma's bed and marched up to the blood-red door, which was crowned with a semicircle of windows punctuated with stained-glass sun rays. Finding the right key on the third try, Cordelia popped the door and slipped inside like a cat. The door slammed shut. In the bay window of the master bedroom overhead, the lean figure of a man turned away from the sunlight and vanished into shadow. The Sumner House had stood on that lot on Sumner, a block from the old city park since 1903. It was a tall Victorian house that could have been a half-million-dollar home, except that they found it in quite a state, and that the last owner had died intestate, with no living apparent heirs. It was a house flipper's dream acquisition, yet, with the amount of work they found themselves putting into it, with the real estate season quickly coming to a close, it seemed most days more like a nightmare, looming, shadowy, and gabled, always in the back of their minds. The Sumner House's spire-tipped gables resembled the profile of the Tetons. It also, Cordelia could not help but notice, resembled the Adams family house, from the wrought iron gate in the high hedges, now disheveled in neglect, to the cruciform weather vane up on the chimney, to the cobweb-like pattern corbels on the cornices. Within, amidst the odors of dust, old wood, old books, and now of lemon floor polish recently applied, Cordelia huffed it up the creaking oak staircase with her orange bucket. She came down the hall to the master bedroom and had a peculiar sensation, not unlike deja vu. Cordelia's fingertips hovered over the old glass knob as she assessed this presentiment that bristled the hairs on the back of her neck, exposed to the dusty, moldy air beneath the bun into which she put her hair for the work about to ensue. Then, considering once more how much she resented the fact that she was the one doing this, here, alone, without Drew, who was elsewhere taking care of who knows what business, when this was supposed to be their summer project together. 
and Summer, now, like him, was not to be found. Cordelia got angry and threw the door open. Cordelia marched into the middle of the empty master bedroom and glanced around with the peculiar sensation that someone had just been there. She was sure that no one had, but to be sure sure, she called out, Who's there? to satisfy herself. If anyone had answered, she probably would have dropped the bucket and jumped out of the bay window. Cordelia hustled into the master bath and clonked her orange bucket down on the sea-green floor tile, a dated fashion, but, in Cordelia's eye, a vintage fashion. She had convinced Drew to keep, along with that glorious clawfoot tub before which she now knelt. You can't modernize a Victorian home, she had convinced Drew. You have to use vintage materials, and the more vintage materials they can refurbish from the home itself, the better. Drew had made the case for tossing out the tub, but Cordelia couldn't suffer to hear such blasphemy. The tub needed love, yes. It was tarnished, stained, rust-streaked, and had several pits in the enamel exposing the black underneath. But Cordelia was sure it was the crown jewel of the master bath, and all other design decisions would revolve around it, not the other way around. She felt less idealistic about it now that she was on her knees on the tile with the deep cleaning bucket. But she was resolute. They might still have to replace all the chromed pipes and fixtures, she recognized now that she was seeing them up close. Those that weren't outright rusted were so thoroughly dulled with generations of soap scum that she doubted it was worth the effort of polishing up even the better pieces when new fittings were cheap at Home Depot. Somewhere in the house, a board creaked. Cordelia stopped polishing and stared through the wall and listened. I hate being here alone, she told herself. She could feel how big the house was, and it made her feel small and vulnerable. Cordelia scrubbed the tub for a while, but when the bleach fumes became too much for her, and she found, after fighting with the bathroom window for five minutes, that it had long ago been painted shut on top of the fact that the ropes to the window weights had long since rotted and untwined. Cordelia was forced to retreat and take a break. She wandered out into the front yard and examined the front of the house with her hands on her hips. One of the first things they had done was paint the exterior. It was an easy place to start that would have the most visual impact for a relatively small investment in materials and work hours. It had been a queasy shade of faded yellow when they found it. Now the Sumner house was a regal blue with gray trim. Cordelia enjoyed admiring the facade, because it spoke of progress, when all the other aspects of the house, which kept her up at night and piled upon each other endlessly with each new discovery, whispered to her of endlessness and hopelessness. Cordelia rested in the shade of the cottonwood, when the neighbor, Piper Thurmond, the young blonde housewife of the founder of the town's hip upstart marketing agency, found her. She made Cordelia feel old. Piper beamed with the youth of her prime and the full contentment of safe domesticity. She made Cordelia also acutely aware of being married to a house painter and flipping homes while they were still renting for themselves. She wouldn't necessarily trade lives with the girl. She'd hardly leave Drew for the world. 
and she kind of resented everything about Piper. But Cordelia felt judged and inadequate. Hi there, dear, Piper chimed. Hey, Piper, Cordelia returned. You guys sure have worked a miracle with this house, she said. And the whole neighborhood loves you for it. Are you happy with how things are coming out? I'll be happy when it's done, Cordelia told her. There's still so much to do. You know, funny thing, Piper announced suddenly. I was talking to Julie Davis, who lives in the White House. Piper nodded to it. And she asked me about David. Oh? Cordelia encouraged her to go on. David Waterstone had been the last owner of the Sumner house, the heirless final heir of the family, who had checked out early and left it all to the wind. Yeah, it was the strangest thing, Cord, Piper said. I had to tell Julie Davis he was, was dead. Piper laughed. And she said to me, when did that happen? And I told her I thought it was sometime last year now, and she seemed really surprised. She eventually came to tell me she could have sworn she'd seen him this month. Piper laughed loudly. Right there. She pointed. In the bay window. When Cordelia didn't show much reaction to what Piper was telling her, she prodded Cordelia on the arm and said, Believe in ghosts? Cordelia told her no, but inwardly noted that this was not the kind of idea she wanted planted in her mind right now, working alone for long days in the Sumner house. She didn't believe in spooky stuff, and hardly thought about it, other than one time on a restaurant job she'd worked in her early twenties, when she could have sworn she saw someone in the storeroom when no one was there. But Cordelia had zero interest in entertaining such ideas. Besides, Piper was in no way serious. I'm joking, Piper said. Of course, Cordelia said quickly. He was a bit of a, a specimen. Maybe Julie just saw what she wanted to see. But isn't that weird? I wonder if what she saw was just you working in there. That could be, Cordelia said. She liked that idea. Yeah, so Julie had no idea he had passed away. She was sure she was seeing him around just like normal. Crazy, huh? I thought you'd be amused by that. Cordelia didn't find anything particularly amusing about discussing the dead and taking it so lightly, but she didn't say so. Piper chatted with her about mostly nothing for another ten minutes or so, and then excused herself with a, Better let you get back to work. I've got bread in the oven. Bye-bye, Cord. And a wave like a jazz hand. Cordelia turned back to the house and, in particular, that bay window where, twenty feet behind its smudged glass and supposed ghostly apparitions, that tub still needed hours of love if there was any hope of saving it. It was a quiet night alone in the Sumner house. Cordelia had discovered, in the upstairs' second bedroom, that there was hardwood beneath the discolored carpet, but unfortunately, the seams between the floorboards were gapped in places. Tonight, she took a break from filling gaps in the bedroom's wood floor with pieces of shims, which would be stained to match the floor, to go downstairs where, under jaundiced hall lamps on brass fixtures that droned through milky glass, 
She lay down on top of her windbreaker and, unintentionally, fell fast asleep. At first, she had a dream about moving into the Sumner house with Drew and starting that family that they had so long deferred, waiting for the right time and for things to be more stable. Yet it wasn't a happy dream. All she felt was melancholy, as if she had waited so long for a prize, only to find that prize disappointingly mundane. At some point, Drew, in the uniform of his painting company, started painting over the whole interior of the house with gray paint, and Cordelia asked him what he was doing, and he just kept smiling and telling her it was okay as he ran his dripping brush indiscriminately over walls, lights, trim, barewood floors. Just before the dream changed, she thought he stuck the brush, fully loaded with dull gray latex house paint, right into his mouth, stretching his lips wide as paint bubbled in the corners of his mouth, and he smiled dumbly at her with glassy eyes. That was when the sinister feeling sunk into her, and the dream changed suddenly. Drew was not in the house with her. She was on the floor where she fell asleep. Across from her, on the wood floor beneath one of the lamps, a miller moth was dying, bouncing along on the wood, having spasms. As she stood, she realized she was no longer wearing her work clothes, but the business casual dress she would otherwise prefer to be seen in. Black skirt and purple button-down shirt fashion boots, and faux gold bracelet, her sunglasses pushed up in her chestnut hair. She was showing the house to an older couple, as if she were the realtor, and she was afraid the fact that the last owner had killed himself in the house was just going to slip out of her and scare them away. She was trying to talk about everything that wasn't that, finding details about the molding, about the baseboards, about the brass lamps, about anything that wasn't the dead man in the basement. Why was he in the basement? She felt certain his corpse was lying there, even now, as she was trying to show the house. What if they wanted to see the basement? Now Cordelia looked down and found she was wearing her wedding dress. The couple had turned to face the wall, with their foreheads mere inches from the wall. In unison, they pulled back and then lurched forward without warning banging their heads against the wall. What? Cordelia muttered in horror. They did it again, drawing back slowly. Then, as if gleefully, the couple slammed their heads into the wall as hard as they could. Their heads were becoming misshapen like Play-Doh. They did it again and again in violent ecstasy as Cordelia begged them to stop. And she sensed, somehow, that the house was compelling them to do it. Cordelia started up on the floor, her hands struggling for stability, momentarily on top of her windbreaker, which slipped over the hardwood. Fuck! she muttered into the silent house. It seemed to be raining outside now. Cordelia could hear the dull, constant pattering of water as she straightened herself out, picked up her jacket, and hung it again on the hook by the front door. She turned to go up the stairs, but stopped, back to the door with a hand on the post. It's not raining, she said. Cordelia's feet tumbled, barely controlled, down the steps into the unfinished basement, more like a cellar than anything, 
although it did contain the washer and dryer hookups, the water heater, and the furnace in addition to some limping, gappy old shelf storage, and, most curiously, the crate at the foot of the steps that they couldn't figure out what to do with. Cordelia saw immediately the source of the water noise. The old brass quarter-turn ball valve on the water line into the heater tank had failed and unleashed a torrent of water. Instinctively, Cordelia reached and tried to stop it with her hands, senseless though it was, and only managed to spray herself in the face, placing the metallic taste of water that had sat long in old pipes into her mouth. The cold water coated her neck and collar, and she immediately recoiled and ran over to the main and closed it. The deluge subsided, swiftly, to a slow drip. Cordelia went upstairs and returned with a towel, first for herself, and herself looked after, for the floor. She patted up what water she could with the single towel she had. Fortunately, this had not been going long, and fortunate it was, she noted now that it was under control, that she happened to be there when it happened. Rising onto her haunches, she put her hands onto her hips and stared at that conundrum of a crate across the basement from her. It was a large footlocker, or antique traveling trunk, girt with fat leather straps, and locked with a big steel key lock, for which they did not have a key. Further, the thing had to be loaded up with lead. She had tried to move it, even an inch, withdrew, and they couldn't do it. They would have to break into it eventually, probably ruin it in the process, but it couldn't live as an obstacle at the foot of the stairs forever. As Cordelia picked herself up from the floor, admired the muddy dust stains on her knees, and went to leave the basement. She placed her hand on the giant cold locker. In a curious flash, she recalled now an image from the dream she had not remembered upon waking. Between the moment Drew had put the paintbrush, fully loaded, into his mouth and smiled that dumb smile, and showing the atrium to the prospective buyers. God, that had been disturbing, she recalled. There had been a transient image, the silhouette of a tall, lean man stood in the front door. Cordelia had been inside the entryway, looking at the opened door, which was backlit by an intense white light that seemed to slither along, glistening across the fringes of the outline of the man, who stood, hand in pocket, hips cocked, looking in. Cordelia picked her hand up from the locker. She forced her eyes up the stairs and grabbed the rail. must have someone working for you that looks like him, Piper said, one hand held theatrically up to the bay window. David, I mean. She laughed and said, That would explain it because I saw the guy too and I can see how Julie would have thought it was him, not knowing that he'd passed. Cordelia shook her head slowly. She could already see the wheels and Piper's head trying to wind back from a place where she could end up looking crazy. No, we're, I, really, am the only person working in the house right now, Cordelia told Piper, as the swaying apple tree cast amorphous shadows across Cordelia's face, and, as the sun cut through again, she raised her hand to shade her eyes and scrutinize Piper's expression. Really? Piper wondered, drawn out. 
I must have just thought I saw someone then. Huh? She added confidentially. A little disappointed you don't have a guy that good-looking working for you. Cordelia looked up at the window and studied it. And then again at Piper, who was now gazing the long gaze down the street as she changed the subject. Really has this had the worst produce lately. I mean, the cauliflower was all brown. It's a travesty. Where are you getting your groceries? Cordelia was hardly aware that she had answered Piper's question automatically. Albertsons? She searched the bay window again, wondering what trick of light Piper could possibly have seen. The susurrant wind rose in intermittent gusts outside. In the second upstairs bedroom, the jaundiced ceiling lamp swung slightly with the subtle sway of the building's frame, giving the shadows an uneasy swimming feeling. The lone window in the dormer showed only black. Cordelia sanded the floor with a handheld electric rotary sander and found, quite quickly, that she'd brought a knife to a gunfight. It wasn't doing enough, fast enough. But it was late now, and renting a floor sander from the rented center was no longer an option until tomorrow. She hoped to already be staining the floor at this time. It was the story of the whole project. Everything later than intended, and harder than it was supposed to be. She switched the sander off and sat back on her haunches. Briefly, the world seemed silent, until her ears adjusted and the wind droned again like the chant of Tibetan monks throat-singing in monastery halls. Cordelia was tired. There wasn't even anything particularly physically demanding about what she was doing. That is, if one was only doing it for a minute. But hours of it. It added up to stiffen every joint and fill her core muscles and thighs with a slow, deep burn that only dispelled slowly now that she sat back to rest. A phantom buzzing persisted in her right wrist from the sander. Her skin felt clammy from the sweat, now that the day had cooled. Her gray tank top clung to her back. She noticed a couple miller moths had gotten in and were circling the light. Cordelia heard a footstep, she could have sworn, in the master bedroom. She crawled across the floor and snatched up the claw hammer from the corner. She sat again on her haunches and listened, already beginning to tell herself that she'd been mistaken. Just as she was about to set the hammer down, she heard a crash. Cordelia jumped to her feet and ventured toward the open hall door, where she listened and peered into the dark upstairs, clutching that claw hammer dearly at her breast. All she could hear now was the wind and the general creaking of the house. Cordelia advanced through the hallway, hammer raised, flipping every light switch as soon as she could reach it. She fumbled around the doorframe of the master bath and pulled the light's pull chain and spun into the bathroom with her hammer ready. At first, she saw nothing out of place, but she realized it seemed darker than usual, and soon identified that impression of darkness as the pitch-black and naked window. She realized it didn't look the way that it should, but the realization was slow and dawning until she stepped around the clawfoot tub and saw the old set of Venetian blinds in a heap behind it on the floor. Looking up at the window frame, she saw that the right-hand bracket that had held the blinds had completely failed. Well, that's all right, she said to herself, relieved. They were going in the dumpster anyway. 
Spontaneously, one of the three vanity bulbs popped and went dark, dimming the room as the wind buffeted the side of the house. And somewhere, something metallic creaked in the wind. Before she could react to the bulb, she heard a footstep onto the tile and she turned quickly to the door to the bedroom. She pulled the hammer up, from her hip to her heart, and her eyes grew wide, like a cat's eyes, as she saw the man standing just inside the doorframe. He fell back to rest his shoulder on the jam and looked at her under his brow. He was tall and lithe, wearing slacks and a button-down dress shirt. It was David. It was the dead homeowner. Cordelia's mouth hung open. Her terror at encountering a stranger morphed into a different but no less troubling horror, that of the inexplicable. As she recognized him from pictures she had seen left in the house after the estate sale, he spoke, his voice deep and warm and confident, as he began to fiddle with his fingernail and set his eyes on his hands. I appreciate all that you've done for my house. Cordelia wanted to run. As she pivoted for the hall door, there were other, lighter footsteps. And slinking along the baseboard, a red fox glided into the room and stared at Cordelia. Staying halfway around the jam, spine curved around it like the letter C. Cordelia inhaled sharply through her teeth and stepped back, grabbing onto the tub hardware. Her eyes darted back to David. He stopped fidgeting with his hands and smiled at her, serenely. Glancing back at the fox, she found it sitting now, on its haunches on the tile, staring with much the same look. My God, she uttered. The hammer shook. David, calmly watching his own hands work, undid his cuffs, one by one, and began rolling up his sleeves. You're... you're David, aren't you? She sputtered. Oh, yes, he said, looking up suddenly and stopping halfway through rolling up his right sleeve. I'm sorry. He stepped briskly toward her and extended his hand. David Waterstone. You're... aren't you... Cordelia struggled to articulate a sentence. I'm sorry. We all thought you were dead. She glanced at the fox, which was watching David now. When she followed the fox's gaze, David's blue-gray eyes were on her, and the inarguable physical reality of his face was undeniable with him so near. She could even smell him, woodsy, earthy. Cordelia, isn't it? He pressed. He was smirking. She started to raise her hand to his, but stopped. The fox suddenly stood and loped to her, sniffing her calf and then the fingertips of her left hand. She could feel the moisture on the breath from its nose. She felt pinned in by the man and his pet, and that sense grew smothering as they both drew closer, though neither exhibited the slightest malice or intimation of a threat. David let his hand fall back to his side and, stuffing his hands in his pockets, turned away and sauntered to the edge of the bathroom, seeming to examine the molding and the ceiling before spinning and leaning once again against the door jamb facing Cordelia. This is Asher he said, nodding to the fox, who now circled around to smell Cordelia's heels. 
I found him haunting the alley and we made friends. In the weak, tungsten light, David looked pale and a little stricken, yet at the same time handsome in an austere sort of way. His manner was reassuringly calm yet firm. His dress shirt billowed off of his frame, suggesting softness, yet his stance and manner suggested the wiry strength beneath it. May I have a look at what you are doing tonight? He said, finishing rolling up his right sleeve. Cordelia, at a complete loss now, only raised her arm toward the door to signal after you. He smiled kindly and then gazed down as, hands returned to pockets, he moved through the door into the hall. Seeing him begin to go, the fox flew to the heel of his leather penny loafers after him. As soon as he was out of sight, a part of her wanted to doubt the reality of what just happened, until she heard his footsteps progress onto the hardwood floor of the second bedroom. She made herself go after him. When she reached the door, and remained there, David was already pacing in the middle of the room, studying the floor. Asher sat in the corner. She wanted to press David as to how this could be, but she couldn't summon the words. Instead, she only watched him, studying him. He spoke first. Aha, I see. It must be a fair amount of work to prep all this floor with that handheld sander, isn't it? I see what you're doing here, filling the seams, that's good. It'll look good when it's all finished. One will scarcely notice them, not any more than one would notice the gaps otherwise. Very good. The floorboards creaked as he stepped into the low at the middle of the room. Where have you been? Cordelia asked suddenly, as the words occurred to her. I've... We've been working in this house for over a month now, and... Oh, David said, raising his eyes. I've been around. You've been here? Certainly, he said, placing a hand in his pocket and turning to her. This is my house. She was going to tell him his name was no longer on the title, but repeated instead, hoping to convey the same significance. We thought you were dead. He only looked at her for a moment, but then broke into a subdued smile as he glanced away and moved toward the window. There was a time I thought to escape this house, this history, he said slowly. Yet now I find that I have purchased this house forevermore. He placed his hand on the windowsill as he said this. Suddenly he lifted his hand and stepped into the middle of the room, looking around his feet. Allow me to help, he said. You've worked quite hard on this. Knock off for the night and the floor will be ready for you in the morning. Oh, I... She's going to say that she couldn't possibly, but, on the other hand, if this man lived, wasn't he the rightful owner of this house? It was his kingdom to do what he wanted, and she shouldn't be there at all. But it was also weird, so unreal. He didn't act like she shouldn't be there, like he was upset people had thought him dead and started renovating his house without him. Not one bit of it made sense. I insist, he said when she didn't finish her thought. Take off for the night. I promise that the floor will be prepared to receive a coat of finish in the morning.
He bent and took up the sander. He tried it in his hand, and, proving that he could run it, quickly turned it off again. Then he set his eyes on Cordelia and smiled. Uh, oh, okay? Cordelia stammered, and she backed from the door and quickly left the house. Glancing up from the lawn, she saw the light on in the bay window of the master bedroom, and, distantly, she heard the sander turn on. Cordelia did not know what to expect. She would be surprised if she walked into the Sumner house and found the floor prepared by a dead man. She would also be surprised if it wasn't done. In the daylight of morning, she wasn't exactly afraid of encountering David again. If he was there, all it could mean was that he was some the fuck how alive. If he wasn't there, all it meant was there was no such thing as ghosts, and nothing had actually happened last night. She unlocked the deadbolt and slipped inside. As she passed through the upstairs hall to the second bedroom, she took a deep breath and found herself holding on to it. The light was off, and the room was dim, with the morning lighting coming from the east where there was no window. So she could not tell, immediately, the state of the floor. She flipped the light and took one step into the room. The floor remained as she had left it. There had been no more sanding. Her heart fell. Well, got a long day ahead, she muttered, and she put her hands on her hips as she considered running out to rent a floor sander, and wondered whether she'd be strong enough to control it, or whether she'd have to start on Drew to get him to do it. But Cordelia was relieved. Clearly last night had been some sort of weird dream like the other time she had fallen asleep in the house. The prospect of moving and running a floor sander by herself intimidated her a bit, and after a minute's reflection, Cordelia got back down on her hands and knees, taking up the sander to begin. It clicked dumbly in her hand. The battery had died overnight, so she had to go downstairs to find a charged one. The sun set around seven, and twilight descended on the Sumner house. Cordelia had all the lights in the house burning. As she finished up staining the bedroom floor, she had to take a break away from the fumes and went downstairs and paced through the entryway in the kitchen, just looking at things and thinking. She stared through the window over the sink at the garden, or what was a garden and was now a minor jungle, with roses overreaching the paths and ivy consuming the fences and high spires of prickly lettuce that almost constituted trees. It was in a state, but she still admired it. She wished she had the time to have a garden. Then, as she stood in the kitchen by the island, studying the rack for pots and pans that hung over it, and wishing she had one at home, she caught a flash of color and movement in her peripheral vision. She turned her head to the door, to the entryway. She saw nothing but the bare floor and the sawdust and construction filth that coated it, and wished for the day the house would be done and the mess all cleaned up. Then she heard it. The padded patter of paws and the click of claws on hardwood. A red fox sauntered through the entryway and disappeared up the stairs. Cordelia's blood ran cold. The fumes, she thought. This house gives me strange dreams, and now I'm dreaming awake because of the fumes. 
But it wasn't like that, and she knew it. The next thought, which had already lost sight of the hypothesis that the fox was a hallucination, was concerned that the fox would go walk across the wet stain. Cordelia ran up the stairs after him. David stood at the door in the hall, looking in at the floor of the second bedroom. Asher sat at his feet, but got up to sniff Cordelia after she stopped behind them. It is looking very good, David said. He turned to her slowly and met her eyes with a faint smile made grave by his stormy eyes. I'm sorry that I didn't fulfill what I had promised. The battery died just after you left, and I did not find a charger. I am sorry that I could not lessen your burden as I promised. That, that's all right, Cordelia said. I am a man of my word, and it hurts me that I could not do as I said, he went on. Don't worry about it, Cordelia said swiftly. Thanks for offering to help, she added, but immediately thought, What am I saying? This doesn't make any sense. Just the same, David said. Let me help you finish this coat of stain. I see you're almost done, but I can make the home stretch pass more quickly at least. Then I would appreciate it if you'd have a walk with me around the property to discuss your plans for it. Uh, okay, Cordelia stammered. She almost thanked him again, but stopped herself for feeling stupid. David proceeded into the room while the fox, prim and behaved, sat and waited at the door in the hall. As they began to stain the floor, David said to her, I plan to make this room an office. However, plans change. I had big plans for renovating much of this house when I inherited it from my grandfather, along with the company. But, as they say, plans change. I must say that you've made some excellent choices, save for but a few. Many things I would not have thought of, yet I do like nonetheless. My father grew up in this bedroom, I believe. Strange to think of that now. A lot of family history lives here, though there is much even I do not know. Cordelia, did you grow up in this town? Most people call me Cord, she said. But that was untrue. Everyone called her Cord. But it was nice to have someone address her with her full and dignified name. May I call you Cordelia? he asked. Unless you do not like it. It is a powerful name. She didn't answer this, but returned to his previous line of inquiry. I am from here, she told him, not looking up from her brush. Born and raised, but we lived briefly and rapid. She winced at hearing herself say we, but she also demanded of herself, a little angry. Why did I wince? I see, David said, contently working his brush over the floorboards with the delicacy of a landscape painter. Then you are familiar with the Waterstones, I imagine. Yes, to a degree, she admitted. Aha, was all he said. She glanced at him. He was wearing the same dress clothes as before, completely inappropriate for this work. He concentrated on the brush through half-raised eyelids. It was clear that he didn't necessarily know what he was doing staining the floor. He was trying very determinedly to do a good job, yet without any anxiety about it. Only serene concentration. He didn't pursue that line of conversation any further. In another quarter hour, they had finished coating the floor. 
Cordelia stood in the hall while David backed out of the room on his hands and knees, chasing himself out with the paintbrush. When he stood in the hall, pushing himself up with a hand on his knee, and his head drew near the hall light fixture, the bulb dimmed and flickered, and briefly, she thought she heard something like old-time TV static. After he admired the floor a moment, he turned to her and smiled, and the bulb grew bright again. His blue eyes set on hers, and he touched her arm. Let us speak of things for a moment, if we may, he said. This way. He held his arm down the hall. Moments later, they were walking through the garden, with Asher leading them around the stone-paved path. It was dark, but by the steps David had flipped a switch hidden under the deck that Cordelia had not yet discovered, and the light posts around the garden fizzled to life, save the two or three that had burned out. Cordelia had understood that David wanted to talk about the renovations, but instead, she found him talking about himself, how he spent most of his time back east until his grandfather passed away, and he assumed his mantle, and also asking about her. And what he asked was not the usual course of occupation and personal history questions, but rather he seemed interested in sussing out her motivations and interests and not at all with the concrete details. She resisted his efforts to dig into her person. Instead, she wanted to know how all this could be. You know that your house sold while you were missing, she said. Missing wasn't the right word, but what was the right word? He only issued a cursory grunt of acknowledgement and tried to turn the conversation away to other things again. You know that I, we, bought this house. To flip it? She pressed. That's fine, he said. Do you enjoy this, flipping houses, I mean? She didn't answer. She didn't want to answer, but she also remained preoccupied with wanting to know what was going on. A part of her thought that she should just go, run home to things that made sense. But, though uncomfortable, the man's mere existence was a mystery that begged to be solved. Now he sauntered casually beside her, hands in pockets, his arm mere inches from hers which alarmed her. Now he was talking about the flowers, lamenting that they weren't in bloom, but he stopped to pick up the shriveled husk of a rose blossom. He held the dead head up for Cordelia to see and said, With a little imagination you can, perhaps, see even in death what it once was. She couldn't deny that he was handsome and charming in a sort of ingenuous way. It would have been difficult for her to explain, but she found that he made her feel comfortable and safe in one way, in his confidence and serenity, yet imperiled in another, inasmuch as he was a mystery on top of being a strange man she found herself so swiftly walking with alone at night. And there was something dangerous about him, intrinsically as well couching somewhere beneath that mask of serenity. She could see it momentarily in the flash of his eye, or in the crookedness at the edge of his otherwise kind smile, when, as if by chance, their arms brushed together passing through a bend in the garden path near to the corner shed. She felt an electricity she had only felt a few times in her life at such a touch. And then, as if to correct for this seemingly accidental bump, he briefly placed his hand on the small of her back to direct her around the corner. 
Her home life in Drew suddenly rose to mind as if the memory of a dream or a former life, and then crystallized as she recalled that that was her reality. And this, this was not. And this was beginning to head somewhere suspect. I have to go home, she said suddenly, interrupting him. Drew is waiting for me. At mentioning her husband, a little imp of a devil in her, to her surprise, took some pleasure in punishing this man for his subtle advance with the mention of her husband. Of course, he said simply, stopping and staring at the stars as he placed his hand on his hips. But one thing first, she said. The words burst out of her mouth before she could think about them. How did the rumor start that you had died? He brought his gaze down to her and smiled. He was clearly calculating his words, yet held on to that mine of serene confidence. It was the first time she thought to distrust anything he said. He'd spoken with such straightforward, childlike earnestness so far. His mouth fell open, and the words followed a few seconds later. To her surprise, however, what he chose to say could only be the truth. I cannot say that it is a rumor. Cordelia wasn't sure that she was going back. She had to go back to continue working. How could she explain to Drew or anybody that she had to give up flipping the house because there was a fucking ghost? But to go back, she knew she was, in some extent, making herself available to David. She knew that she was going there to see another man, and in that sense it was like she was stepping out to have an illicit date. She also felt like she didn't want to give David the victory of coming back to the house. She wanted to withhold that from him. But if she was honest with herself, the simplest part of her looked forward to going to the Sumner house again. It was a reward she held in front of herself all day as she delayed returning to work there, doing every possible other errand and chore she could think of instead. Cordelia didn't return to the Sumner house until the next morning, telling herself that she wasn't even sure if she could see David by day, since she never had so far, and she would try to leave before evening. She was relieved to find the house as empty as she supposed. Yet, through the day, at every noise and supposed noise in the house, she would stop and listen as she felt her heart race for a few breaths. Early that evening, as twilight threatened, Cordelia found herself stuck in the entryway, halfway between fleeing and halfway hoping that he would catch her before she did. She could feel the growing urgency, pressing her toward a decision. She wondered what she looked like, but refused to return upstairs to the vanity mirror. She tried to see herself in the glass of the door. She caught her own eyes in the reflection, and then broke from them, and straightened her hair. She looked a little tired, a little sweaty, but that was to be expected. The light flickered, and the floorboard creaked behind her. The bulb remained dim as in a brownout. She felt a hand touch her left arm. He drew close behind her. His right hand took hold of her other arm above the elbow. Pleased to see you again, he said. She turned. His grip loosened to allow her to turn. There he was looking down on her, his smile jagged. She pressed her back against the door. At seeing her reticence, 
he too took a step away. The light bulb returned to shine at full force. A moth plinked against the glass and then began to circle. David drank her in. Cordelia was about five foot four to five foot six of stringy, lean muscle, thoroughly tanned. A camo tank top clung to her clammy skin. There was a charm necklace on her bony collar. She was just old enough, in her late thirties, that her skin had begun to loosen, and there was a certain hollowness in her cheeks and eyes, made up for by the greenness of the latter. There were sunglasses stuck up in her brown hair. I apologize, he said. I have overstepped, perhaps. I'm sorry, she found herself saying. I have to go. I'm sorry to hear, he said, eyes averted. He took to wringing his wrist like a child. He bit his lip. She began to turn for the doorknob. Wait, he commanded. And he reached and took her arm again above the elbow and stopped her. He leaned in swiftly and kissed Cordelia on the mouth. Her protest caught beneath the press on her lips and emerging only as a curtailed mmp. She raised her arms against his chest and tried to push him away. He drew back, eyes glistening above a smirk. He had her by the shoulders now. She breathed rapidly. David seized both of her wrists from his chest in one hand and raised her arms over her head as he came in again, pressing his mouth against hers and forcing her lips apart, ran his tongue against hers. He then kissed her on the jawline, such that it pushed her face to the side, and then began to kiss down her neck, still holding her hands over her head. I'm just so hungry, he said. He examined her eyes and then kissed her again on the mouth, longer this time. His free hand moved from pressing against the door to gripping her side. Do you know what I am become? He asked, his voice hushed, yet deep and rich and urgent. A ghost? Cordelia answered. He shook his head and smiled, his eyes on her lips. As his own lips parted, while speaking, he flashed canines grown inhuman, bestial. Cordelia even thought she could see them enlarge within the span of that brief glimpse. He released her arms and gripped her other side. Her arms fell around his neck as he leaned down again and brought his mouth to her neck. She could feel his hot breath as he raked his teeth against her, gently, raising the hairs of her neck. His grip tightened and he pressed himself against her. She felt his teeth stop, pressed points against the skin and his now erratic breath running over her. She gripped his back. With a mild pop and a strong sting, she felt those canines break the skin and sink, just below the surface, as she took the hair of the back of his head in her fist and moaned. When he pulled his face back from her neck, a little blood was smeared over his lips, and one long canine showed behind his sneering smirk. He kissed her again on the mouth, and Cordelia could taste her own metallic blood. Then he grabbed her cheek with one hand and began to unbutton his shirt with the other. As each button popped, more pale skin showed. He had been a fit man in life, and remained so now. Forcing Cordelia's face onto his chest, 
He drew one long fingernail across his own skin, just in front of her, drawing forth a bead of glistening red. His palm pressed on the back of her head, and she licked the length of the cut. Cordelia drifted in and out of sleep, and of strange dreams, as she reposed on a bed of a jacket she had at the house, and his shirt. Asher lay on top of her. His muzzle rested between her bare breasts. His coat felt wonderful against her skin. Listlessly, she lifted a hand and began to pet the creature's head. She could feel David's warmth to her right, and hear him breathing, slowly, meditatively. It's late, she said suddenly. David didn't say anything, but he took a deep breath. Cordelia pushed Asher from her chest and struggled onto one elbow, turning toward David. He smiled at her tiredly, very sincerely. I have to go, Cordelia told him. Hmm, he toned, and he nodded. The next day, Cordelia came to work on the house, but was distracted, and she spent a lot of time standing in the bay window looking out over the neighborhood. She watched some children playing in the yard across the street, running around the bushes, trying to catch each other, playing tag or some other game. Though Cordelia hadn't felt so good in a long time, she was also sad and conflicted and a little angry with herself for what she had done. Angry, but not regretful. She looked forward to evening. Cordelia felt alive, like the rest of her days lately up till now had been a walking sleep, so boring and hopeless, trapped in a life she never meant to build. Now there was hope, but there was also guilt, a lot of guilt. There were two little boys and one little girl. The girl looked like the sister of one of the two boys. The boy who was not her brother caught her coming around the bushes and they giggled. Cordelia smiled. She almost wept. There was a part of her that wanted to just go down there and steal them away, make them her own. Drew was in no hurry to give her children. But what if she could build something else with someone else? Cordelia glared darkly down upon the children, a sneering smirk cutting slowly across her face. That evening, Cordelia walked about in the garden while David prepared a surprise for her in the house. Asher went with her, loping at her calves. The lampposts buzzed and shed dull light on the skeletal tendrils of dried-up flora and the moths that danced among them. Cordelia stopped and admired the plaque in the midst of the garden, which showed Moses striking the rock with his rod and water pouring forth. Waterstones, she thought as she ran her fingers over the tooling of the relief. Do you know what he wants from you? spoke a deep, serene voice. Cordelia looked down and found Asher gazing up at her from near her left ankle, his black, shiny little nose pointed directly at her face. You know what he wants from you, he said again, but transforming it from a question to a declaration. His mouth did not move with the deep voice. Who are you? Cordelia wondered. Who am I? I am no one. Yet my lord has given me a name, and you know who I am. 
I am Asher, as my lord has named me. What he wants, Cordelia, is one like unto himself, with whom to rule his kingdom. His kingdom? This house? she asked, almost laughing. That black bead of a nose pointed silently into her face before answering. Nay, not this house. It is beneath this house. This house is his prison. His kingdom is within the box at the foot of the stairs. You must go to it. After that, though she plied Asher with questions, the fox would not speak again. When she went back inside through the kitchen, she found dried rose petals littered, tracing a trail through the house into the entryway and up the stairs. They led her to the master bathroom, where the clawfoot tub waited, filled with warm water and steeped with dry rose petals that released an aroma of rose mingled with the must of autumn. David was nowhere seen, but a folded paper waited, marked with carpenter's pencil. You deserve your rest. Forget every concern. Forget everything for a while. But remember me when you are done. Cordelia undressed and tested the water with her fingertips. The odor was beautiful. Breaking into a smile, she stirred the water and watched the petals churn. The vanity lights buzzed and flickered. For a moment they dimmed as if in a brownout. As Cordelia breathed, the essence of the roses lofted on the steam of the bath. The odor seemed to strengthen and, to her wonder, the rose petals began, from death, to fill with life, reddening like the blush of a cheek flooded with blood. She grinned like a child. Soon, the whole tub of water seemed to glow, sunset red. And she realized it was the water. The rose petals were no longer to be found. Cordelia withdrew her hand. A rusty cloud churned in the bathwater as something white floated to the top. It was a nose. And then an entire face, pale as death, senseless eyes opened to the beyond. It was David's face, bobbing in the water. Cordelia started and screamed and stood back. She turned at the sound of footsteps, and a young boy, maybe ten, burst through the door. Closed now, though Cordelia had left it open. He stopped at seeing the tub, color draining from his face. He may not have seen David at first, only the red water. So he drew nearer, and then he definitely saw the white face bobbing in the water. The expression and the sound that the boy made were like as if someone had sucker-punched him in the gut. His hand started to go up to cover his mouth, hesitated, and then clutched his mouth as the convulsions of weeping set in. Amidst his sobs and choking, he cried out, and some time later, a woman appeared at the door, dressed in white for summer, like a typical country club woman ready for the tennis court. She stared in shock, but then thought to grab the boy to her and then stared some more, solemnly, but did not cry. Cordelia saw there was not a ring on her ring finger. After a moment, given to the shock, the woman pulled the boy from the room. Cordelia ran from the bathroom, down the hall, and down the stairs. She didn't stop until she was in the basement at the foot of the stairs, and she found the footlocker, left gaping open, for the first time. She found that it was filled to the brim with dry earth, tamped down as with the broad face of a shovel. As she placed her palm on the dirt, it accepted her like the face of a pool. It was just like putting her fingers into the tub a moment ago, except it was cold now. 
The truth about David rested in this. Cordelia stepped into the box, sinking as easily into the portable grave as into water, and she sank down into it as into a bath, until the crown of her head went beneath, into the cool earth. It was black and silent and dead, yet something lived, or not necessarily lived, but was animate, deep within the gloom, as Cordelia sank slowly into the bottomless. Something like spider's legs reached from forever, but as they gently wrapped around her midsection, she found them soft like tentacles and cold. Another appendage began grooming her hair, delicately. Who's there? Cordelia cried out. I am David's mother, said someone. From the darkness, a skull-like face drew forth on a long, oily stalk with permanently downcast eyes and blank expression. It was draped in thin white hair like cobwebs. Not of flesh, it said, but of spirit. I am the mother of all those who are denied a Christian burial. I am the mother of all those who hope, not in the things of God, but in liberty. I would like to be your mother, Cordelia. An old Ford Bronco loaded up with painting gear pulled up to the house on Sumner. Drew, wearing his white jumpsuit spattered like a Pollock painting, with the chosen shades of a hundred homes, slid out. He clutched a bunch of roses, picked up from the grocery store, from Albertson's on the way. He gazed up at the yellowed light burning in the high bay window of the master bedroom. He felt like he'd failed her as a husband and as a man lately. On the other hand, he'd been working so hard exactly for the sake of providing for her. But on the other, this had led him to being absent and worse. And this is what truly made him feel bad. To shoving nearly the whole burden of the Sumner house onto her shoulders. When, if he could... He would have preferred to treat her like a princess. He knew, deeply in every bit of the way nature and upbringing had wired him, that he should be the one working hard for her, not her working hard for him. Tonight, he hoped, would be the first step in making things right, in heading back toward the ideal order of things he'd always wanted with Cordelia. He opened the door and entered the lamplight, which seemed dimmer than it should be. Miller moths bounced chaotically around at the level of the crown molding. A lot of them. A window must have been left open, Drew noted. Cord? he called. But he did not get an answer, so he started up the stairs. He tried again, halfway up the steps. Hun? he called. Drew gasped for air when he saw the drops of blood on the hardwood of the landing, and he snatched up the claw hammer that was resting on the rail placing the bouquet there instead. Lights were on in both of the upstairs bedrooms, and there was a mild ruckus emanating from behind the closed door of the master. Visions of finding her son apart by a serial killer burst into his mind unbidden and could not be easily shaken. Drew walked quietly on the edges of his souls to the second bedroom first, as the door to this was left open. He should have fled and called the police then, but what he saw only made him more desperate to find out what had happened to Cordelia and to save her if he could, for what he found were the bodies of three children, two boys and a girl, 
hung by their ankles from the ceiling, wounds in their necks, but only mere specks of blood on the floor to correspond to them. Drew fought for air as he crept toward the master along the wall. All he could hear was his pulse. He could hardly register anything his senses were telling him anymore. The world swooned and swooped and blurred, and he was close to losing control of his bladder. But desperately, with no thought of any other option, he went on. Drew threw open the door of the master bedroom. In the brown light of a flickering bulb, he saw something taking up almost the whole room, and Cordelia, naked, wrapped in the midst of it. And what it was, was like flesh, and in it were the parts of a man and the parts of a gigantic fox, including the flaming tail and a muzzle that grinned a cartoonish grin with pointed doggish teeth. And this heaving mass took up the whole room and throbbed, and it cradled Cordelia within it as, through a translucent tubule, it pumped some sort of seeds the size of golf balls into her body, as she smiled a fanged smile and moaned. A tall, broad-shouldered man limped through the darkness. The shadow of his long gray hair hung over his scarred, stubbled face. Under his feet, the sandy ground gave slightly with each uneven step. He bent, picked up a handful of earth, sniffed it, and the air above it, tasted it, and then spit. He took a drink of the dark liquor from a flask inside his leather coat pocket, and then he continued limping down the road clutching the cross that was at his neck. And tonight, please allow me to introduce Reverend Caldwar, Pastor Mike said as he stepped out from behind the podium over the makeshift stage. He bowed slightly as he beckoned a man from the front row to come to the stage. A tall, slender man with pale skin and sullen eyes stepped onto the stage. A few in the congregation clapped. Most of the fifty or so members of the Heavenly Peaks who'd gathered in the tent were silent with anticipation. Many of them had seen this tall, odd-looking man and wondered who he was and where he had come from. Could he be the evangelist, they wondered. He has to be, they thought. But no one in the congregation had ever seen a man so strange. Few of the women would call him handsome. His face, which none had seen directly, as he was slightly hidden from view in a chair behind the piano, was angular and protruding. His nose protruded, his sharp cheekbones protruded, 
Even his brow protruded. His hair wasn't threatening to fall off of a Neanderthalic cliff or anything, but it was pronounced, to say the least. Despite his odd looks and his looming presence, many of the women were experiencing sensations they hadn't experienced in years for some, decades for others, and some had never experienced anything at all for which to compare. Take Susie Lee, for example, she of the Pippi Longstockings braids and the yellow little house in the prairie dress. She thought there was something wrong with her chair because her belly was tingling. Donna Houston, a blue-haired old busybody from the local Rotary Club, was smelling a cigarette on the autumn wind and remembering the feeling of her exposed chest through her unbuttoned blouse pressing up against Mike Westcutt's letterman jacket. Linny Springsteen was remembering a thunderstorm one August afternoon, the night her eldest son was conceived. June Bug Dillerson remembered running her hand through Jackie Tilly's thick curls as Johnny Mack thumbed hopelessly at her nipples. Some of the men were experiencing similar thoughts and sensations. Some, even those who'd never had a queer thought in their lives, were shifting in their seats. Finally, the man stood up. He was tall and thin, but moved with a grace allowed only to the strong and quick. He looked old to some, older to others, and yet there were a few in the congregation who would, if asked, swear that he was not a day over thirty. He stood silently looking over the crowd in the tent. The lawn chairs were in rows of twenty, with an aisle down the middle. There were maybe ten rows, and the tent was mostly full. There will be many converts tonight, he thought. The top thread, tying a black cross above the entrance, broke. And still tethered on the bottom, it swung upside down behind the heads of the mesmerized congregation. The limping man made his way to the hill. He long ago left the road, as watchers had been sent, eyes over the highways built by men. He'd traveled many miles, his hips aching, his left knee sparking a flame up his thigh with every step. But still he kept his eyes straight and followed, holding the cross on his neck and drinking of the dark liquor. Across his back, a sword, and over his hip, a big revolver. When the man spoke, the congregation fell silent with a collective sigh. Or was it a moan? Men, women, and to the man's delight, children were all silent. They were gathered here, in this place, for holy reasons. But the place itself was not holy. There had been no right to sanctify this ground. They were nothing but cattle gathered beneath a sheet on a breezy night. A plate covered to a delivered meal, being held at temperature by a cloth. The limping man saw the cheaply erected cross outside of the tent. A flash of red, hellish light flashed from the ground where the cross had been driven, and suddenly it leaned hard to the left. A small and twisted figure danced in delight. As he slowly approached, he saw the thing was a man, or had been a man, 
but evil had twisted its face into a fanged grin. A tail danced out from beneath the trench coat. It climbed onto the sod that had been pulled up with the cross tipping, pulled out a deformed penis, and pissed all over the cross, saying, Take me off my holy water, lord of the swine. The limping man's gait evened out, and then he ran forward, willing the pain away. He drew a thin silver blade from the scabbard across his back and slashed through the creature's legs. It toppled to the ground. The man turned and waited. The monster was inside, but there were more here to deal with first. There were always more. If you had asked Judith Miller, she would have told you that the evangelist, whose name she could not remember, had never stopped making eye contact with her. For the same reason, Alexandra McGee had swooned, actually swooned and fallen into the aisle. No one noticed. No one moved to help her. No one, in fact, moved at all. Though she wouldn't remember it later if she survived the night, Beth Mack, John's sister, would have said that the man's voice was like music. No, it didn't sound like music. It was music. She didn't hear words when he spoke, but instead she heard an ancient, angelic chorus. Whispers of pleasures without relief and life eternal. She climaxed with a groan, and though she felt it, she never stopped staring into those eyes. William Cortland thought the eyes were the color of a golden leaf in autumn reflecting in the sunlight, as they had once, from the safety of his grandmother's back porch. Heather Fall thought that they were like rubies dancing in firelight, just like a necklace she'd seen at a bonfire the night she first fell in love. Kenny Stillwater thought they were as green as the end zone beneath the Friday night lights, or as pink as Jenny Marsh's panties at the after party. They all felt as though the eyes never left them. Never left them. He said, I am the great I am, and flashed a wicked grin. None of them knew whether this were a proclamation or quoted scripture. The eyes held them, even the preacher, a true man of God according to most in the church, though the three women sitting in the front row, who were not his wife, could have told you a few other things. The tall man lifted his arm and brought a knife to his wrist and slashed. He stepped over to a small table that had been set up with a carafe of grape juice and a box of wafers. He took a cup and held his wrist over it. At first, the blood only trickled, but then the wound began to flow. The usher came, walking slowly with the blank look of a man in a dream. He picked up two cups and passed them to the front row. Two women in the front row took the cups and passed them down. By the time he returned to the table, several more were full. The blood flowed until everyone in the room had a paper cup, and they drank, blood dribbling down their chins as they gulped it as though it were the last drop of water in a never-ending desert. Jackie Jones took her cup, upended it over her open mouth, and then shoved her tongue inside the paper cup. Old Bobby Portsend whose hands had been shaking like pea gravel on a railroad track for the year leading up to his Parkinson's diagnosis, spilled his cup and then dropped down onto the floor like a dog to lap it up. 
the dust turning into a brownish-red mud in his mouth. The congregation slurped, smacked, and licked until every drop was gone, and then they were silent. Outside, the man had found himself with another grievous leg wound, goddammit. One of the fucking neck-suckers had clipped his leg with a barbed and twisted tail, opening his thigh and spilling his blood. He'd have to deal with that wound before he went inside. But these lower creatures are only held by two wills, base instinct and the will of their master, whom he presumed was too busy inside the tent to take notice. The creatures focused on the blood dropping to the ground and licked it off of the gravel, rolling it, slathering their fingers in it, and diving, ripping and tearing at each other, fighting to get to the source, the open leg. It made them easy targets for a sword. He considered one of his revolvers, but that would have been too loud. Whoever eateth of my flesh, the man boomed. He slashed with a knife and cried out. The congregation cried with him, and his arm fell to the ground, and then... His arm stood upon the hand, like some strange scorpion, and it scurried on clawed fingers to the front row where the congregation fell on it, tearing chunks of meat with their teeth and crying in ecstasy. When the limping man came into the tent, he looked up and saw his mortal enemy staring back at him. His left sleeve was missing, and something pink and arm-like was growing back from the elbow down. His black, shark's eyes narrowed, and he flashed a fanged goblin's grin. You live, the creature said, sneering. Indeed, the man said. Now you die. He drew the revolver from his hips and fired. The blood-soaked and ravenous congregation had fallen into a sort of mass seizure, leaving him temporarily, in effect, alone with the enemy. The bullet found the creature's shoulders and opened a gaping wound that sizzled. The silver bullet melted and poured down the creature's chest, smoke rising from any place that it touched him. The creature tore the bullet out from its shoulder with its own teeth, the only part of it that didn't seem vulnerable to the silver. Then its knees bent backward and it sprung. The creature flew over the writhing mass of the congregation and took the man by his throat and pinned him to one of the wooden posts that held up the tent. The creature's rotten breath reached his nostrils and he vomited. The creature allowed this to happen before closing the man's airway. The man losing consciousness smiled as the creature reached its split tongue forward to lick the vomit from the man's chin, and then it withdrew and screamed as its tongue swelled, turning purple and black before exploding. The man dropped to his knees clutching his breath and sucking in air in rough harumphs that slowly turned into laughter. The man took out the flask and said, Blessed by the father himself, and poured the water over the creature's head. The flesh melted leaving a skull that was distorted with growths of bony protrusions like budding horns. The creature fell dead. The man stood and looked at the congregation who were now standing. He'd taken out one of the Dark Lord's knights, and these were the rising horde of lower minions. He drew big guns from his hips and fired.
Nope, nope, I'm not touching that. Come on, man. It's it's something special to feel it kick. Dude, let go of my hand. Oh, 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 that was weird. I know. I love it when I kick. You kick? Yes. Will you pass the potato salad? Sure. Brett, why is there another place setting? Oh, I'm going to arrive at any minute. You're already here. In spirit, but no. No, I'm not here, Matt. Remember, I'm dead. I've been dead for many episodes now. Yeah, but that hasn't really changed anything, has it? It changed my tax status. But do I want to be dead, Matt? No, I don't. Oh, something's happening. Quick, man, bring me the crockpot. The what? The crockpot. Not the one with the baked beans, but the one with the mucosal substance that looks like clam chowder. Crockpot, crockpot, there! Oh, oh, no, not this one. Hmm, oh, those beans smell good. Ew, oh, what the fuck is this? What is this stuff? Oh, God, I splashed it on my hands. Wait, I, I can't even feel it. Yes, bring me the crockpot with the ectoplasm. Ecto... like the... like the stuff in Ghostbusters? Yes. I can't just be born into our world. I have to adjust to the... the atmosphere. Ah! Uh, here comes a contraction. <laughs> no, dude. <laughs> How's that feel? Like a legal obligation. What? He handed me a contraction. I signed it. Ah, here's my proctor. Yeah, you keep saying that, but what do you mean? Well, who who else would provide my anal-natal care? My proctologist, Matt. Mr. Cummins, would you like to stay and comfort him? Hold the missus hands, perhaps? Matt, you look like you're about to faint. Oh, I'm about to be sick. Brett, you're, you're becoming see-through. Yes, my soul is being slowly siphoned into my newborn butt-baby's body. Goodbye, Matt. I shall soon be reborn. As I fade away... Something new shall emerge. I want the biddy, Matt. Hold me and rock me. Monster Porn Podcast is a production of Warped Box Media. Today's stories were The House on Sumner by me, Brett Norwood, and Edith of My Flesh by Matt Cummins. Music also by yours truly. Good Labor Day, Monsterbaters, and good day to be in labor. Brett here. If you enjoyed this episode of Monster Porn Podcast, be sure to subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. 
You can also help us corrupt and torment the most souls possible this Halloween season by sharing the porn with your friends and coworkers. If you know someone who needs some wickedness in his or her life this All Hallows season, and who doesn't, be sure to recommend Monster Porn Podcast for all your soul-defiling needs. Reviews, social sharing, and word of mouth are what help us spread. There's also the Monster Porn Store if you're looking for something weird to wear to that Halloween party. Hit up monsterpornpodcast.com store. Use promo code LABORBABY for free shipping this week. That's it. Until the shark angels come, stay weird, and Godspeed, strange cowboy. Yes, my soul is being siphoned slowly back into my newborn butt baby's body. (laughs) (laughs) She pulled the orange Home Depot bucket full of scrubbers and bottles and nitrile gloves out of the... (laughs) It also, Cordelia could not help... Why does that keep catching in my throat? It also, Cordelia could not help... Really? To the cobweb-like pattern corbels on the cornices. Did I just nose fart? God, that had been discur- disturbing. She fuck fuck. Asher sat on his haunches. Today's story brought to you by the number sixty-nine, and the word haunches. Brought to you by the word haunches. The limping man saw the cheaply erected. Mm. Boner. Cheaply erected boner.